Last Sunday, we looked at the second part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and our focus was on verses 6 through 19. That second part is where he prays for the men who were walking with him toward the Garden of Gethsemane, his 11 disciples. He prays specifically for them. There's some reference to all Christians, but for the most part, he's praying for those 11 and He prayed for the Father to protect them in a number of ways, to protect them spiritually. I mean, he's leaving, right? Jesus is going to ascend and and return to the Father. There's a a few days there after he leaves that the Holy Spirit's going to come. But for the most part, he's praying for them as he's leaving them, and he prays for their protection spiritually. He prays that the Father would protect their unity, unity being that they're all in agreement with um, the things, the essential you know, tenets of the faith and that they're unified in love and peace and these sorts of things. Um, he prays that the Father would protect them from the world and the devil. Um, these guys are the apostles, and uh, one will be added. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts, but for the most part, these guys are the guys that are going to immediately carry on the ministry uh, of Jesus Christ, and they're going to have the same supernatural powers to a authenticate the word that they preach. They're going to preach the gospel and these things. So it's essential that they are protected from the devil, from the evil one, from the world as they carry out their their ministry. And when that time is up, the devil never has any claim on them at all. But, you know, in seemingly so, the world prevails over them because they're martyred. Uh, but for the most part, they were indestructible until their time was up. So he prays for them Uh, to be protected in that way. And he also prays for the Father to protect their sanctification, which is it's the process of being made like Christ. And that's a lifelong process from the moment someone gets saved to the moment that they pass on and go to be with the Lord in His presence. That whole time period there from start uh, to that part where they go to be with Him is sanctification. That's all our experiences, everything that we're going through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, our study of the word, our, our engagement in the means of grace that God has prescribed, all of that is meant to shape and form us and conform us to the, to the image of Jesus Christ, to make us like him. That is the actual goal of our salvation. It's not just golden streets and an inheritance. It's to be like Christ. And so he's praying to the Father in that glorious, awesome section for those things. He wants the Father to protect those things and, and to keep them safe. And this morning, we're going to look at the third, and, the third part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he actually prays for all believers. He prays not just for the 11 again here. He's praying for all the believers that existed at that time and all the believers that will exist throughout time until his return. And so he's praying for the whole church, so to speak, and the true church. So please take your Bibles and turn over to John 17. We're going to be closing out this awesome chapter with verses 20 through 26. And I'm kind of sad because this little section is is kind of like the last section of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John. From here on out, it's all historical narrative. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified and buried and risen and ascended and all these things. And and so this is, this is kind of it. This is really the end of the, uh, of the farewell discourse and 
the final application or part of that, which is the high priestly prayer. So from here on out, things are going to move pretty swiftly. I always say that, and they never move swiftly. Uh, but for the most part, it is literal historical narrative from here on out. And uh, it's a retelling from Scripture how things played out. And, of course, we'll draw truth and principles and things from that. But this is, this is it, man. This is kind of the final big red section, if you want to call it that. So let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and acknowledge your total and absolute awesomeness, your total purity, your total holiness, your infiniteness. Um, you are so far beyond, incomprehensibly beyond anything. You are infinite. And we are but minuscule, finite beings with limited capacity to listen and to pay attention and to learn and to grasp and, and to live out. And so we pray for your mercy this morning, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to come in mercy and to, to open our minds and to open our ears to the truth, to help us not be distracted, but to, to be able to listen we pray that the Holy Spirit would take uh, what you're going to say to us through your word today and drive it deep into us, that we would have a kind of Hebrews 4.12 experience where the word of God penetrates and cuts through and gets to the depth of who we are, that it reaches our souls and that it transforms us. And there might be some here today who have not yet uh, been saved, who have not yet... Uh, surrendered, so to speak, to Christ, who have not been regenerated, and we pray that you would work that miracle of salvation, regeneration in their hearts today, and for the rest of us, we pray that we would be sanctified, that we came into this place a little bit like Jesus, and we would leave a little bit more like Jesus, because you have taken your word and applied it and transformed us through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. So we surrender ourselves to you right now with our attention and focus, and we pray that you are glorified as you instruct us and teach us. And we pray that you are glorified as your word is proclaimed. You deserve all the glory. We love you when we pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Amen. So in this final section, we, we see the Lord Jesus praying for all believers, but we see him praying for three things. Really is very practical here. He does pray for three things, and I'm going to identify them and break them down for you. And the first thing that he prays for. He's praying to the Father. The first thing he prays for is our unity. Now, he prayed for the 11 disciples' unity earlier, and now he's praying that the whole church, all believers for all time, would be unified. And we see this in verses 20 through 23. So I'll just read it and exposit it for you. Jesus is saying this as he's continuing to pray. Remember his posture. He's looking up to heaven. His disciples are around him. The 11 are around him, and they're listening to him pray. They're watching him pray. And this is the next thing he does as he's gazing up and into the stars, into heaven. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even and loved them, even as you loved me. So this is the very next thing that he prays for. And in verse 20, 
He basically introduces another group distinct from the 11 disciples whom he had just prayed for right in the previous section. And what he's doing here is he's literally, you know, he's omniscient. He, he knows all things. He sees all things. Yes, he's man. Yes, he's God. But he has this omniscience. And, and we see expressions of his omniscience, his all knowledge. We see that or his, um, yeah, his all knowledge. We see that. Uh, riddled throughout the Gospel of John. And here's, here's, here's one instance here where he's actually looking ahead, right? He's looking out throughout the corridors of time because he was in time and space right now as a man. He's looking out and he's looking ahead through the centuries, through all the centuries, through the entire church age. He's looking out throughout all the centuries and he's literally praying for all who would hear and believe the Gospel. All believers for all time. So this is a, an all-inclusive prayer for all believers. And, and, and we know that the vast majority of these believers <laughs> had not yet been born, right? I mean, he certainly didn't have the entire elect before him. You know, he, he, we, don't, we don't have, all, he's not just thinking of the people that are on earth at this point. He's thinking of all and beyond that, and even those who haven't even yet been born or saved. And yet, since the vast majority of them, being that the vast majority of them had not yet been born, he's praying for all, he actually knows them all. Jesus knows them all. He's not speculating that people will believe. He's not guessing that people will believe. He's not hoping that people will believe. He's not praying that people will believe. He knows who will believe, and he knows them by name. He literally knows him in this moment, and he's praying for all of them. At this moment, he is, in a way, praying for Phil Baker, who wouldn't even been born 2,000 years later. I mean, 2,000 years later, I come around, and I've made things difficult for people ever since. He's literally praying for me. If you're in Christ, he's praying for you. There's people in this room who might not yet be in Christ, who will be in Christ. He prayed for you. He knows them all. Because the good shepherd knows his sheep, right? John 10, 14. He's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. For Christ had written their names, every name of every believer for all time. Old Testament, New Testament, now had written every, every name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. So this is a specific prayer for every and all believers for all time. The men who were with him, the believers who were in the world uh, you know, at that point, and everyone who will come after that, every believer. And he knows them. He has their names. He went to the cross with their names. He died specifically for them. That's what the Bible teaches. And in verse 21a Jesus asks the Father to unify all believers, this whole body, this massive group, to unify all believers just as he and the Father are unified. And there is no unification like that anywhere that I've ever seen. I mean, the church comes close to it, but the unity that's shared within the Trinity is unlike anything. It's absolutely perfected. But he's asking for that now, that his entire bride the whole body of Christ, every believer would be unified together, and he knows who they are, all of them. He asks the Father to make all believers one, 
just as He and the Father are one. In verses 21b and 23, or through 23, He actually describes what happens when believers are unified or united. He literally gives a couple of bullet points here for what happens when the whole bride or the whole body is together and unified. First, God is glorified, verse 22. Glory is is brought to God and God who is glorified. He puts it this way, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now I want you to just think about the way this works and, and, and the, the mechanism here. First, we need to understand a little bit more about God and who He is. God is a God of order and peace, right? I mean, this is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 14.33 and Romans 16.20. God is a God of order and peace. Now, this is not to say that God is not a God of war, God can be a God of war. Just read the Old Testament. Daryl's been listening to it lately, and he goes, I can't believe the carnage. There's some serious warfare going on in there. There is some serious destroying of God's enemies in the Old Testament that we see there. But God, it's not to say that he can't make war. He certainly can. But God is a God of order and a God of peace. And so what we would say about that, since he's a God of order and a God of peace, order and peace are therefore representations of God and who God is. And what does unity do? Unity promotes order and peace, right? I mean, you, unity is, is basically based on order and peace in a sense. But if we're all unified, then there's going to be order and peace in our body. If we're not unified, there's not going to be order and peace. So so here's the point here. Here's the idea. When believers are unified, right, when they're together for the gospel, so to speak, they're rallying around the same thing that we're supposed to be rallying around. They're united in, in, in doctrine and these sorts of things, and they're living that out. When believers are unified, order and peace are present, and God is therefore what? Accurately represented. And when God is accurately represented by His people in the body of Christ, He is glorified. He is not glorified when He is not accurately represented. But when He is accurately represented by His people, He's glorified. Especially when they're together. When disunity in the body occurs, order and peace are diminished and God God cannot be accurately represented. God cannot be glorified within that group. And this is why the Bible puts such a high premium on unity among believers. Because the unity of believers testifies to who God is and therefore brings Him glory. But disunity does the opposite. Now, it is totally true that that nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation can literally impact God's character and glory because He is immutable. When we fail to glorify Him down here on this side of glory, it doesn't literally take glory away from Him. He is infinitely glorious. But I'll tell you what, 
he is immutable. His glory cannot literally be taken away from him. His character cannot literally be maligned or distorted. But the way his people behave can help to shape the way others perceive him. We can't take anything away from him by acting like a fool on this side, but we can certainly certainly shape the attitudes and opinions of those around us, can't we? I mean, if they see Christians gone wild, they're going to think God's a God who's gone wild. This is what happens. So, So unity glorifies God because it promotes things that accurately represent Him, such as order and peace. And this is really Jesus' first point. If they're unified, they're together, they're treating one another the way they're supposed to, they're unified on the things they're supposed to be unified on, and they carry that out, we're going to be glorified. That's what he's saying. We're both being represented rightly, and the result, this results in glory to us. This is what Jesus is praying for. In a sense here, Their glory is at stake, but as I said, and that'd be down on this side, but as I said, they're immutable, so the glory can't be taken, but we can certainly shape people's opinions and perspectives. So it's so essential that we remain unified and have peace and order in our body, because to do the opposite of that is to not accurately represent God and to not bring Him glory down here. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is praying for. That's the first thing. Second, unity communicates God's love to the world. Verse 23. Believe it or not, when when believers are unified, and let's say they're all unified and they're all quiet, somehow their unity that's experienced because things aren't chaotic and and there's no peace and all that, I mean, you know, they're they're not going crazy. Somehow that that promotes and, and produces a visual image of God's love. Jesus puts it like this, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. There's the unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, so so once again, this has to do with accurate representation. That's what the previous point has to do with. When we're unified, we have peace, we have order. There is an accurate representation of who God is being promoted and put out. And that's exactly what he's talking about here again. It just has to do with a different thing that's being visually produced. It is because God loves the Son that the Son was given a special people of His own. John 3.35. Did you know that? That because the Father loves the Son, the Father gave the Son a gift of people, the elect all believers for all time, who Jesus is praying for. So so it's out of love coming from the Father to the Son that the Son gets this gift, the gift of a bride, the gift of a church, the gift of a people, the gift of the elect, the gift of the chosen, the gift of the predestined, whatever you want to adjective you want to put on it. And not only that, it is because of God's love that the Son came into the world to save His own. All who believe, right? What's the most famous verse ever? John 3.16 clearly communicates this. So, so when believers are unified, God's love for the Son and love for the elect is clearly displayed. 
In other words, when believers are together and they're living out the faith and they're walking the faith and they're struggling together, doing all the things together, but they're maintaining unity and, and peace and order and all of that, God is shown as a God of love. The world sees our love for one another and it says to itself, well, they must belong to a God who loves because look at how they love one another. Again, accurate representation. But when believers are not unified, when they squabble over secondary doctrinal issues or certain practices, paedo-baptism, and there's just a plethora of them, when they squabble over these things, when they break unity over secondary issues, the love of God is perceived as either non-existent or inefficacious, powerless. Right? I mean, if you've got believers that are just <laughs> professing believers on Facebook, which is from the devil, and they're on Facebook, and, they're, and trust me, I'm guilty. I've done this a million times. That's why I got rid of it. I couldn't manage it well. Couldn't manage my own emotions or feelings and, you know, I got rid of it because I just didn't treat, I didn't use it as the right kind of tool. I would get in these debates and arguments and how frequently and how often I showed or kind of displayed in some crazy way that God isn't a God of love. I'm guilty. That's why I got rid of it. I didn't want to inaccurately portray him any longer. Why don't you just modify your behavior? That's pretty hard. I'm a passionate man. Some of you people are passionate people and you love theology and you, you love doctrine and you love the word of God and, and sometimes to a fault to where we stop loving people and we bludgeon them with it. That was me. And what, what does the world think when it sees believers squabbling over secondary issues? It perceives God to not be loving or that body of believers to not be loving, to be more concerned about the letter of the law than the souls of men. This happens. In verse 23, Jesus prays for the Father to unite all believers because if they are united, the love of God will be clearly seen throughout the world. This is essentially what he's praying for. And if you're like me, you're curious. And you're wondering, does, and this is, this is what Jesus is praying for. The Father always answers Jesus' prayers in the affirmative. He's never denied a prayer from the Lord because the Lord Jesus has never prayed for something that would be worthy of being denied. And this is what Jesus is praying for. So, so if Jesus is praying for this, then this will come to pass. This will be true. There will be unity in the body, and, and, then, and now you've got to be thinking, okay, but what about denominationalism? You've got all these different groups that kind of came out of the Reformation, a glorious period for the true church, and they come out of it, and then you've got Lutheranism, and thisism, and thisism, and thisism, and thisism. At one time, somebody was speculating that there's 30,000 plus you know, Protestant denominations. I don't think that number's accurate. It's probably more like seven or 9,000, but there's still seven or 9,000. What happened? If you're like me, you're saying to yourself, maybe this prayer wasn't answered in the affirmative. Maybe it didn't come to pass. Maybe the Father just said, that's not real, Jesus. I'm not going to take care of that one. You've underestimated people. Well, Jesus never underestimated anyone, and the Father would never even question anything Jesus ever did. So, so denominationalism does not prove that Jesus' prayer somehow failed. 
or that it was rejected or turned away by the Father. No, 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 no. You must understand the true church of Christ, the invisible church of Christ, not the visible, the invisible, all the real believers on the inside, the true church of Christ, the invisible church of Christ has always been and will always be unified on the essential tenets of the Christian faith. They will always be unified together. One Lord, one salvation, one spirit. The true church has never experienced a second of not being unified. It is the visible church that cannot agree and attain unity. What is the visible church? It's all of us coming together with all sorts of people all the time, wherever we're gathered. You see, because the visible church is not comprised of just believers. It's also comprised of unbelievers. There will be a moment in the future where an angel will literally separate the wheat believers from the tares unbelievers. That's going to happen. That's coming. And so, so denominationalism doesn't prove that Jesus' prayer was ineffective or didn't work. It doesn't prove anything on that matter. The true church has always been unified. It always will be unified. Is the true church perfect? No. Only the Lord is perfect. But understand, now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I know true believers who go to town on certain issues. Hold on, I'm going to address that. You need to understand that even the true church will not achieve complete theological or doctrinal unity on secondary issues until Jesus comes back. But that doesn't mean that true believers war over those things. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to pursue unity above agreement on secondary issues. And the moment they start going down any kind of path there, in fact, I'm not sure true believers do it. Maybe they do to a degree and they realize and they unify, but for the most part, it, it's secondary issues. And there's a ton of them in the Scripture. But in my opinion, the true church has been and always will be unified. That doesn't mean that believers don't mix it up. But they don't go as far as to toss out total and absolute unity on secondary issues. And if they do, then maybe they're proving that they're not actually in the faith. This is how serious this is. But we're not going to be completely in complete and absolute total doctrinal agreement on secondary issues until the Lord comes back. And yet, this reality does not negate our responsibility to seek to unify with believers who agree with, who adhere to, and who affirm the essential tenets of the Christian faith. This is what we're to pursue with those who affirm these things, those who agree with these things, those who believe these things. So another question arises, what are these essential tenets? Well, here's going to be a lesson in doctrine for you. Because I think it's important. You need to know. You need to know who you can unify with. It's very important that we do that because today you've got so much ecumenicalism. Christians trying to join with every group that kind of names the name of Christ or kind of smells like Christ, smells like Jesus a little bit. You've got Christians that are going crazy trying to join with. And I don't know about you, but I think most people in this country think they're actually Christian. They at least say they are. 
doesn't mean they are, but we need to know who we can unify. And, with, and, and the way that we know that is there's a bit of a litmus test here. Who that professes Christ actually believes, affirms, and defends these essential tenets? Those are the people that you can join with. Those are the people you can rally with. Those are the people that you can fellowship with. Those are people that you can serve with. So what are they? Well, I put nine, and you might not hear one that you think is one, and you need to repent. (laughs) He didn't put in there they have to wear a tie when they preach. That's that's the kind of stuff that happens, though, literally. Literally. Notice how I'm not wearing a tie. I like to be a thorn in people's side. (laughs) What are the essential tenets? A, the doctrine of Holy Scripture. This is a starting point. What is Holy Scripture? It's it's your Bible, and it's your Protestant Bible. 66 books. It is divinely inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is objective truth, not subjective truth. I can make it mean what I want. It means what it means, and you accept it or reject it as it is. It is authoritative. It is complete. Nothing is being added to it or subtracted from it. It's done. There is no progressive revelation in the sense that God is still speaking beyond his word. He has spoken. And guess what? When your Bible's closed, his mouth is closed. When it's open, he's speaking. The Bible, 66 books, it is the believer's rule for faith and practice. It alone makes one wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, if you want to share the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ with someone, they've got to take that stance on the Bible. They can't have a stance that doesn't align with these things. It's inspired and errant, infallible. If somebody tells you, I'm a Christian, but I think the Bible's fraught with errors, we can't go any further. So this is a starting point. The way people view the Scripture, the way people view the Bible, this Bible, especially the ESV. (laughs) You can have an NLT or whatever and be unified, barely. I always have to push my Bible. So that's first, the Scripture. Where does a person land on Scripture? they got to have that view on Scripture that it's, it's everything, man. B, the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. God is triune. He is three in one. He is God the Father. He is God the Son. He is God the Holy Spirit. Don't ask me how that works. Well, uh, it's kind of like an egg. I hate those illustrations. It's like water. It can be steam, ice, and water. You know, it's like, no, those don't even come anywhere near close. He is triune. But he's not just triune, not just Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is holy. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, all-present. He is eternal and and glorious in in all of these things. If you want to unify with somebody, they have to have a right view of Scripture. They have to have a right view of God. And they have to have a right view of God in the triune sense, that he's Trinitarian. And this is a big issue today for people. Today, people say they're Christian and, and you know, you've got God and that's the Father and then you've got these emanations or expressions of God in the Son and in the Spirit. That's apostasy. Our Bibles teach that there's a Godhead. 
All three are equally God, equally powerful, equally eternal, equally knowledgeable, and yet distinct. You, you, can't, you can't unify with oneness people who say that, you know, God is not triune. You can't. What do you do, hate them? No. You evangelize them. But you, you can't join in sweet Christian fellowship and the cause of Christ. Unity, right? You can't join with people who reject the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't. They're essentially rejecting who God is and literally how he's revealed himself to us in Scripture. That's essential. You, you can't, there's no negotiation on that or the first one or any of these. See, the doctrine of creation, this is essential. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. He created all that is in them, just as Scripture says, six days. Now, if you think that's six 24-hour days like it you know, reads, then praise the Lord. If you think it's somehow 6,000 years, I don't know where you come up with that. But it's essential that you believe that God created all things and all that is in them. And I would say a six-day literal is the way to go because if you don't land there, you land in weird places later. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. We didn't come from ooze. We didn't come from monkeys. Evolution does not exist. You've got people out there, well, I'm Christian. Yeah, okay, when God created, no, it's everything's evolution. Okay, hold on a second. It's essential that we believe and affirm the doctrine of creation. That God created all things. Really, if, if that is not true, if, that, if, the, if the truth in Genesis 1 and 2, if that's not true, then nothing after that is true. You, you cannot have this unity that we're talking about here with people who reject creationism. And I would say reject, and I'm not talking about like, like a divine, you know, like they, they go with the... Um, there's that whole divine authorship kind of thing, or, or um, what's the phrase for it I'm looking for here, where they say, you know, well, there had to be a God that created it, or something higher power. beyond. You can't even unify with that person. We know who God is. It's not just that we believe in creationism. We believe in the God who reveals himself in special revelation here, that God who is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the God that created all things. It's not enough just to believe in you know, something out there had to do something. That's not Christian. D, the doctrine of the fall of man. Man rebels against God by disobeying his word. Sin, spiritual death, and physical death entered into the world. This is a a non-negotiable doctrine. We fell because we disobeyed in the garden. The doctrine of human depravity, this is also essential. All men are sinners by nature and choice. All men are separated from God because of sin. All men are spiritually dead in their transgressions and unable to come to God on their own. This is a biblical reality, and it is a non-negotiable doctrine. You can't unify with people that go around teaching that man is intrinsically good and can do stuff. Man is not good. He's dead. He's dead in his sin. He's spiritually dead. He's a walking spiritual zombie. Because of the fall in the garden, man is depraved and fallen in nature and sinful in nature and sinful in choice. All men are equal here. 
We're all in the, uh, it's a level playing field. There aren't some men who are less sinful than others in God's eyes. There are some men who commit more grievous sins than others, but in God's eyes, they're all dead because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So you've got the fall of man, you've got human depravity, and then you've got F, the doctrine of the gospel. Did you know that the gospel is a doctrine? It is a doctrine. It's not just a good news message. It is a biblical doctrine as much as the doctrine of God is a doctrine. The doctrine of the gospel. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ condescended, left heaven, incarnated, became a man, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life of obedience, died on a cross to atone for sin, was buried, rose from the grave on the third day, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell, and he ascended. He returned to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's the doctrine of the gospel. And Part of the doctrine of the gospel is, G, the doctrine of salvation. This is the doctrine that describes and explains or defines how one is saved. you got to affirm that doctrine of the gospel and this component of it, which is the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is in Jesus Christ and no one else. You're not going to find it in anything else, anyone else. So, when a person says, well, yeah, I believe salvation is in Jesus, but I think it's also in the works, and maybe there's a, a tinge of Buddha in there, and, and, uh, and you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a new age. No, there's not. Salvation is in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That excludes anything and everything else. Salvation is in Jesus Christ and no one else. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates spiritually dead sinners, causes them to be born again. Salvation is not by works or by a combination of works and faith. It's not a combo. It's not a synergistic work. It's a monergistic work. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. And the saved are new creations. They become a new creation because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And they now love God and pursue righteousness, hate sin, and turn away from evil. Do they do that perfectly? No. But that is the great desire of their new heart and their new nature, and that's what they pursue, and that's what they spend the rest of their life fighting for. H, so that was the doctrine of the gospel and salvation. It's in Christ alone. H, the doctrine of hell. Yes, to unify, to have this, to have the fellowship, to have what Jesus is talking about, those who profess Christ to be a Christian, they have to believe in the doctrine of hell. And you're thinking, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard any preacher say because every professing Christian believes in, Christian believes in hell. Eh, wrong. Some of them believe there's a hell, but it's not forever. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian in history, in our entire history as a nation, said that by the very logic alone, what Scripture teaches, but by logic alone, if heaven is eternal and forever, then hell is equally eternal and forever. And that's true. 
We have to affirm the doctrine of hell. Those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior die in their sins and are consigned to divine everlasting punishment in hell. There's no way out of that once it happens. They're there forever. Breaks my heart. Makes me sad. It inspires me to preach the gospel all the more because it's the only message that saves but they, they've got, if we're going to have this, they've got to believe in the doctrine of hell. And I, lastly, the doctrine of the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ. Some who profess Christ say he's already come the second time. Some who profess Christ say he's not coming a second time. Can you do this with them? No, because he's coming. He's coming. Jesus Christ will return in glory just as he came the first time in humility, you can trust. As the Bible teaches, he will come again, but not in humility that time. That time he will come, or this time he will come in glory. What will he do? He will subdue his enemies. He will establish his kingdom, rule, and reign over the nations, over the world. He's coming. Well, I think he's already came the second time, or I don't think he's coming because it's been 2,000 years. Well, try to correct that thinking, and if they don't comply and go along with it, that's not somebody you can do this with because they're rejecting the return of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are to affirm, believe, defend the second advent. We have to. As I said, these essential tenets are non-negotiable. These are, this is Christianity's core now, the details and finer points of this one or that one can be discussed and, and should be discussed, should be respectfully debated among believers, but if a person flat out rejects even one, they are outside biblical Christianity. I don't make the rules, man. You know? And I, I, I don't even enforce them. I just preach them. We cannot unify with a person or church that denies any of these essential tenets. We can't. We need to love Mormons, but we can't join with them in Christian unity because they reject a number of these and Jehovah Witnesses and, and a whole lot of other groups out there that claim to be Christian. So what do we do if we can't unify with them? What do we do? We evangelize, we, we pray for them. Maybe God will be merciful. That's what we pray for. God, I was just interacting with someone who professes Christ, but, but man, he rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you open their eyes to the reality of that because I know they cannot be saved with a mere human Jesus. This is what you pray for, and you pray passionately for it, and you pray consistently for it. Just because we, we can't unify them, it doesn't mean that we abandon them. There's a difference between Christian unity and the fellowship and all the fruit that's in that and, 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 and interacting with other people. There's, 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 there's staunch distinctions there, but, but man, we, we've been sent into the world to, to pray for people and to preach the gospel so that, that they can come to believe these things in the Holy Spirit. But we can only join and that closeness with those who affirm. Now let's move to the second thing Jesus prayed for. Our future presence with him. We see this in verses 24 to 25. This is what he says, says next. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And he's speaking of the 11 who are with him and all believers. They will know. In the first part of, of Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, he prayed for the divine glory he had before the earth existed to, to be restored to him, right, at his ascension. We saw that in verse 5. Here, he prays for all believers to literally finish the race and enter his physical presence so they can behold his glory. He is essentially praying for the perseverance or the preservation of the saints so that they get from point A to point B and enter His glory and experience His glory. He's praying for the Father to to bring them all through, to cross the finish line. Now, the primary thing that plagued the disciples that night was that Jesus was about to leave them to return to the Father. From the moment we started looking at the farewell discourse, we, we immediately realized as Jesus is announcing His exit and His betrayal and these sorts of things, that the, the men that were there with him just fell to pieces emotionally. They were so sad and sorrowful and anxious. And I mean, they had spent three years touring Israel and beyond with Jesus, their Lord, their Savior, their Master. They didn't understand what, all that they needed to understand about him at this point, but they knew him well enough and they'd been cared for by him and loved by him. And, and they loved him so much. And it, it terrified them to think that Jesus was leaving or that he would be slaughtered and killed like an animal, like a lamb. This is the primary thing that plagued them this entire evening as Jesus was sitting with them, teaching them and walking with them and teaching them. They were so sorrowful over the loss of his physical presence. The very thought of his absence troubled their hearts and filled them with sorrow. Chapter 14, verse 1 chapter 16, verse 6. And yet the Lord had promised to send a helper who would manifest His spiritual presence to them, right? The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is how it translates. But that promise had little to no effect on them that night. They were just insanely focused on Him being there and the idea of Him not being there in a few short hours. If you've ever lost someone... If you've ever lost someone you love, you know what that feels like. That was their whole night. Now, I want you to do something here. I want you to underline the phrase, I desire. You see it there in your Bible? Highlight it on your phone, however you're using it, your scripture there. Underline the phrase, I desire. We see it at the beginning of verse 24. Maybe your translation... English translation doesn't say it that way. Get an ESV and then you can underline it. I'm stupid. The Greek word for desire is thalo. T-H-E-L-O. Thalo. Oh, what a word. What a word. It it denotes a, a deep, deep longing for something or someone. So, so, with that being said, verse 24 could be rendered into English in this way. 
Okay, I'm not a, a Greek scholar or expert, but I know enough about it. Verse 24 could read this way, Father, I have a deep longing for whom you gave me to be with me where I am. What Jesus is telling us here and what he was telling them then 2,000 years ago as they're listening to him pray is that the feeling is mutual. You see, the disciples wanted to stay in his physical presence And the Lord Jesus had the same desire. He longs for all his people to finish the race and enter into his physical presence so they can behold his glory and be with him forever and ever and ever. What I'm telling you is is that the sorrow and trepidation and anxiety and and sadness that the disciples felt that night because of the presence of Jesus going away from them, Jesus experienced in a similar way, so much so that he desired that the Father, and he prayed for the Father, bring them all to me. Why? Because he loves them. love. It's a agapeo love, agape love. Deep, profound, perfect, selfless, sacrificial love. After all, all these people he's praying for who, whom he longs to have in his presence, after all, they were all given to him as a love gift from the Father And Christ loves the gifts the Father gives him. True believers long, true believers long, long for the physical presence of Christ. Amen? We didn't even get to see this or experience this the way these 11 men did and others who were around them. And yet we long for our faith to be transformed into sight so that we can behold the Lord and even the nails in His hands and the holes in His ankles and His feet, that we can behold Him. We long for His physical presence. We long for heaven because we want to be with Him. And I'll tell you what, it is incredibly encouraging to know that Jesus also longs for us. And that he even prays for us to finish the race so we can enter into his glorious presence. Amen? What a truth. I mean, this is just a mind-blowing truth to me. MacArthur says, It is not difficult to understand believers wanting to be with him, but it staggers the imagination to realize that he wants them to be with him. Boom. This is what he prays for. Verse 25a, we see the confidence of Jesus displayed in his use of the term righteous father. Since God is righteous in in everything he does, Jesus knows that God will make good on his promise and present him with the full gift of his people. Jesus is praying for these things, but simultaneously knows that the father is going to bring it all about. In verse 25b, Jesus reiterates the point he made back in verse 9. He's not praying for the world, but for whom the father gave him. 
In verse 9, he was referring to the 11 disciples. Here in verse 25b, he is referring to all believers. All have been equally given to him by the Father. Now let's move to the third and final thing Jesus prayed for. Number three, our love. We see this in the last verse, the last verse of this awesome narrative. Verse 26, Jesus says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Eternal life is to know God and be in a love relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, right? You slide back to verse 3 of chapter 17. He says eternal life is to know God. And it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. There's love there. There's a relationship there. Now, the experiential starting point of eternal life is when Jesus manifests or makes the Father known to a person through the Holy Spirit, verse 6. From that point forward, Jesus continues to manifest the Father to the individual through the Word, verse 17. And we call this sanctification. See, in our sanctification, we're being molded and shaped to be like Christ. And one of the ways that Christ does that through the Word is He drives us further and further into the depths of God's love. It's the love of God that is so transformative and powerful. It's the love of the Father that actually transforms us into the image of Christ. When Jesus saves a person, he basically introduces them to God's love. I I remember when this happened with me. I didn't know God or know God's love at all, and all of a sudden I felt like it was poured out over me with a pail. And I was like, something's going on. Something's happening. And yet through sanctification, Jesus works to drive his people, all believers, into the depths of God's love. And he works to ground them in it. And in verse 26 here, this is precisely what Jesus prays for that all whom the Father has given him out of the world would be sanctified and come to know and experience the depths of God's love and that his love would be in them just as Christ is in his people. This is what he's praying for. One last little quote from MacArthur, and we'll begin to wrap up. He says this, God's love is poured out on believers at salvation, continues in them as Christ indwells them, and is fulfilled perfectly in them in heaven. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Start to finish the love of God in us. Closing. What will capture the world's attention and thus show that the Father sent Jesus Because of love. Will it be our conformity, kind of a universal conformity to secondary theological issues? No, the world doesn't care about these things. And we know that secondary issues won't be, we won't be perfectly unified on them till Christ comes back. So it can't be some kind of universal compliance or conformity to secondary issues. It won't be that 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 captures the world's attention. Will it be a kind of unit? And some people would really like this, and it scares the tar out of me. 
Will it be a kind of universal doxology where every believer praises God to the same genres and songs? <laughs> we can only do hymns. You've met them. You know them. You're one. Well, we can only do spiritual songs. Well, we can only do psalms. Is it going to be some kind of, some kind of conformity or you know, to a, a universal doxology where all believers, like this universal liturgy... Well, no offense to Roman Catholicism, but they've been doing this since the beginning, and it hasn't really done much. This does not work. That, that's not going to work. That doesn't capture the world's attention that we're all doing the exact same thing when we show up at church. And believe me, I wasn't picking on Roman Catholics, but they have a liturgy that goes out from the Vatican and goes to every parish. Now, some parishes are rogue. They don't do what the Vatican says. Will it be a kind of collective experience where every believer walks the same path of discipleship and goes through the exact same trials and so on? We all just kind of walk the same walk of faith and, and discipleship and go through the same things? Is that what it's going to be? No, there aren't any cookie-cutter Christians. Not in the experiential sense. All Christians are saved in the same manner and way. But the way that that works itself out in their life is not identical to every believer. It's not the same. So it's not, it's not a cookie-cutter kind of thing that's going to snap its finger and the world goes, whoa, look at them. What will it be then? What will gain the world's attention and show that the Father sent Jesus because of love? It will be our unity in love. It will be our love for one another. It will be our love for all believers, all true believers. That's what will do it. I want to encourage us, all of you that are here today, I want to encourage all of us, including myself, to, to love one another to such a degree that the world takes notice and asks why we do what we do. And at that point, we can say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we can share our testimonies and, and describe how we first encountered the love of God and how the love of God has transformed our lives and attitudes toward others, especially the brethren. We can, we can, at that point, we can blame our love for others on the love of Jesus. So my question for you this morning is how, and for all of us this morning, is how are we loving one another? Here are some practical ways we can do this. We can pray with each other. We downplay the power and significance of prayer. And it is a mighty expression from one brother to another brother, from a sister to a sister. It's an expression of love. To be concerned enough about one to pray for them and to lift them up to the Father in the name of Jesus. We can pray with each other. We can pray for each other, but I say we can pray with each other. 
We can bear each other's burdens. What an expression of love. Boy, that gets people's attention. When a brother or sister is suffering and we're suffering alongside of them, that their burdens cause us and inflict suffering on us, that we have this kind of empathy and shared experience. We can bear each other's burdens. We can serve and meet each other's needs. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody you love them. You know what? I love you, brother in Christ. I do. It's quite another to show them through action. And love is action. It's not just verbal. There are needs in this church right now. There are hurting people. Here, now, today. You can pray with them. You can bear their burdens. You can meet their needs. Maybe somebody here has some physical needs. Maybe somebody here could use some help with their yard. Things have gotten out of hand. Who knows? You can love them by helping them. We can encourage each other with the Word of God. You know, sometimes I can put together sentences that are somewhat helpful for people. Usually they're the reverse. But when I go to the Scripture... And I read the Scripture, and I point them to Scripture. I point them to the very Word of God. There's where the comfort is. There's where the help is. There's where the encouragement is. We can reach out to each other during the week. Heaven forbid this would be just a Sunday thing. If that's all it is, we've missed it. This is where we come to get trained. This is where we come to get equipped for the ministry of the gospel. And when we leave here, we live that out and do that. Beginning with our own body. With one another. We can reach out to each other, see how each other's doing. And there's just, I don't have any more listed. I could just go on and on and on. We only have so much time. Love one another. Find a way to love one another today. There's a lot of day left. Find a way to, to love one another throughout the week. And by loving one another, we show the world God's love. But we must also tell of His love. We show it through action and we speak it and talk about it. That's what we're to do. I'll just invite the worship team to come on up here because they're going to lead us in a song. They can head up here, and I'm going to wrap this message up with a super convicting statement from my all-time favorite Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And you know, most of the material that we have access to today uh, from him comes from his sermons. The guy had a long, very fruitful preaching ministry, and so most of this, I, I, can, I can see him in my mind's eye, standing before probably 10,000 people saying this. I am told that Christians do not love each other. He says, I am very sorry if that be true, but I rather doubt it, for I suspect that those who do not love each other are not Christians. <laughs>